Inkstead, CITR 101.9 FM. This is the radio show where we talk about comics. That was Bowie, Hart's Filthy Lesson, off of his uh, seminal industrial-esque album, Outside. That was one of Bowie's more angst-ridden periods, I would say. Uh, My guest right now is Troy Little. His comics are... uh, No, I'm totally going to mispronounce it. Kiruskiro? Kiruskiro. Kiruskiro. You see... Yeah. And the other one is uh, Angora Napkin. Um, originally, uh, Keith Screw. <laughs> I picked the worst title, didn't I? <laughs> the most it, unwieldy title ever. 
I can't say I've seen uh, better uh, titles um, or worse titles, I should say. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that and Angor and Afghan have been collected by IDW, and uh, it was originally self-published back around the turn of the century. I guess is the way to put it. Would that be a apropos description? Yeah, actually, that's, I never thought of that before. But yeah, it is actually the turn of the century. Kind of dates me now. You feel old. I feel really old. <laughs> a bunch of gray hairs just popped out out of nowhere. I found one the other day, actually. Yeah, I've had them for a while. <laughs> At a young age. Thanks, parents. Thanks. Great <laughs> genes you gave me. Um, now, Troy, uh, also, as well as my previous guest, is another Canuck, um, this time from the lovely uh, little province of PEI, Prince Edward Island. Am greetings I right? From the, greetings from this side of the country. Yeah. How's it going over there, eh? It's uh, actually the first nice day of summer so far. Reached up to a balmy 20 with uh, no clouds, so that's a big change. Wow. I think we had frost last night. Wow. Yeah. That is horrible. It's a rotten, rotten temperature climate place to live down here. <laughs> it really, you know, not to, to speak ill of your home, but that's, it's middle of july yeah i know yep yeah by the time we get summer it's it's pretty much over that sucks yeah such is my this <laughs> is my lot in life you're across the bear so uh i guess we'll start out with uh your first book tell me about that and uh what what drove you into the madness known as self-publishing uh well it was kind of uh me needing uh, something else to do uh, outside the world of my day job in animation. So I kind of um, spent a few years doing that and, and was just finding it really, in a lot of ways, unfulfilling. And uh, kind of a, an old love, you know, mine was just growing up with comics, and I was, like, doodling comics and drawing comics. So um, I just kind of started reading uh, some different comics all of a sudden. I was almost, you know, pretty burnt out of the whole... 90s and what Marvel did to the industry and, and kind of gave up on the whole thing until I, I came across a few things like Cerebus and Bone and Strangers in Paradise and this whole self-publishing movement and kind of was like, this is this is interesting. You, these guys are writing and drawing their own stories and getting them out there and they're not really asking anyone's permission to do it. They're just doing it and making it happen. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of appealed to me that I could have a, a medium where I could do exactly what I wanted to and uh, not really have to cater to, you know, a client or boss telling me how to do it. Or the man. The man keeping me down. So, yeah, it was kind of just uh, a need of, of doing my own creative work and, and not having anyone kind of interfere with that. Do you find that something you deal with when working in animation? Because I know a lot of animators in Vancouver, and they kind of they need to... The ones that I do hang out with, there's a lot of animators in Vancouver, so I'm not going to say I know every animator, but they need that that release of something that isn't a storyboard. Yeah, and I find, you know, if you're really into animation, you'll just, you'll, your outlet will be making your own short films. Yeah. Um, I know an awful lot of animators that do comics, too, or, or do both, you know, so I do find that there is, you know, more than, more of a need to, to do something of your own work than just, you know, perpetually be a cog in the machine. Yeah. Yep. And uh, the animation industry is, uh, she's not a... Well taken care of, I don't know. You basically live from contract to contract, hoping an unkind mistress. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's really brutal. Like I hear, and this is not. It's the same everywhere. It's the same in the states, Canada, and where you are. I think everyone has got animation horror stories. Yeah, if you're in the business for any amount of time, you've got you know, can you believe this happened? Kind of story, or so you've gone through studio closures or just craziest of stories come out of this this business. Yeah, and you work your ass off. Yeah, <laughs> you do that. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about comics. Enough of the the the, <laughs> the evils. The evils of animation that drove me to the world of comics. <laughs> it's a but, dark. You know, nonetheless, animation is is you know supporting my comic book habit, such as it is. So there we go, yeah. and that is also a dangerous habit. Yep. It's a it's a dark comic. Uh, Kiriskiro, yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's uh, it was. You know, in that angsty time of Bowie and Nine Inch Nails that was spawned in the late 90s, so... 
You're so. wearing uh, black combat boots and um, scruffy hair. Time. There was a time, but uh, all grows up now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those awkward periods. Yep. We all have them. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I've got more than a couple. I'm probably <laughs> still going through them. Uh, definitely, it was yeah, <clears throat> an angsty comic to start out with, sort of thing. Um, and certainly something I just. I was just completely self-indulgent in so many ways that I never even considered, you know, looking for a publisher at the time. I just thought, you know, nobody's going to want to take this on and, and put it out there. It's my own, you know, little oddity in the world of comics, and I'm going to do it. So, um, you know, it took a lot of years to come around, but it actually did get the the IDW publishing deal. So, Huzzah. It kind of surprised me that, how did that, <laughs> that it went that way. But How did that work out? Because it didn't... D- they don't really. I don't know. They're an odd entity. I'm. I'm still coming to terms with IDW. Yeah. What a. What an interesting place to be with those guys. <laughs> it's like uh, on one side they do the most terrible like transformers and things like that, and then the other side they're printing your comics and Bob Fingerman's comics and yeah, it's and the little orphan Annie reprints and all those reprints. They're it's quite know. the beast that, but. Um... You know, back in the early days when I was first approached by them, and I was speaking with Ted Adams, the president, he was, uh, he said, you know, that the business and Transformers keeps the lights on, you know, yeah. but, uh, like, we really, we're, we're looking to get more little personal type things out there as well. So, um, people like myself and Kevin Cold and the Fishtown and, um, Pat Lewis and stuff were all sort of getting picked up at the same time by IDW, you know, these little creator-driven independent things, so. It's a nice little side project. There's in one sense, you know, to, to do such a nice, and they do a really amazing job on production. Mm-hmm. Um, the books look great. I even just got today uh, on a Canadian note their uh, their Captain Canuck in the mail. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure whether publishing art. They're doing an Archie reprint now. I read the other day, a collection of Archies. But... Yeah, it's like I think it's like the early newsprint work. Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm. It would be nice to see like a Dan DiCarlo Treasury or something. Yeah, yeah. It was just an odd one to Archie. <laughs> okay. You mean sure. there's, they're not hard enough to find, or they're not too hard to find? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so no, the uh, the self-publishing thing, you know, I came in, you know, probably a few years after the whole movement had died, and it was the most non-lucrative thing you could probably do, but um, I, I guess I got a, you know, a little putting the door boost by getting a Xeric grant early on and you know it kind of helped get me into the diamond previews and into a few stores i did not know that yeah yeah 2000 i think mazel tov hey yeah <laughs> it's a little late yeah well nonetheless it's appreciated so yeah that uh, kind of at least boosted my ego a bit and helped me kind of you know make more issues it was a little bit of a wow people actually want to read this angst-ridden, self-indulgent thing of mine. <laughs> and, uh, like, great. And they're going to give me money to do it, and then, oh, well, that's even better. So. <laughs> Hooray! I managed to actually uh, to hold down, a, I think, a bi-monthly schedule for about seven issues before I ran out of money, and then <laughs> that kind of put a stop to that. Now, the story, a big part of it seems uh, frustration with uh, modern art. Uh, yeah, probably a little bit of the main character, Stephen Patch, is... is uh, just to sum up for those who haven't read it, which would be most people probably. <laughs> um, Stephen Patch being a, an unemployed artist with a blank canvas at his disposal and really no motivation to actually do anything with it or do anything with his life in general. So he's just kind of coasting around through his existence, hanging out at coffee shops and doing very little. Um, then I guess it gets at one point a little bit weird where there's a couple of people break into his home uh, or a case of mistaken identity and give them a good thrashing sort of thing and question his merits as an artist while they're at it. And uh, finally, towards the end, he uh, he has the Faustian offer of um, having a patron. You know, all you have to do is paint and we'll provide you with, mm-hmm. you know, all the means at our disposal for you to become famous, you know. So it's it's the first book of a three-act play in one sense. You know, this is the uh, the big setup. So I guess my next book that I, I'm just starting on is the Empire Strikes Back version. Uh, <laughs> people, Where everything goes to shit. Email, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it's it's the tradition in the in the trilogies. You know, yep. first one you kind of set it up, and then second one you expand. Yeah. But it's a bad ending. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you got all the downers. Yeah. Yep. Bad isn't you know terrible things happen to people, and then and the I'm third. I'm all about that, really. I you know I'm I'm down with the more stories where characters go through the ringer. I yep. think it's a important thing to do to people. Yeah, it's a good life lesson. <laughs> Just imagine that was you. Yeah. Oh, uh, we can live life carelessly through our fiction, at least. Did you always have it planned out pretty far ahead, like? As far as coming up with the story? I guess the genesis of it originally started way back in probably like in the mid-90s, and it was a, just a loose idea. It wasn't even an idea I had called Eclectic Cafe, and it was just kind of me drawing a bunch of comics, I guess, about me and my friends or something, and it really was going nowhere, and nothing happened with it, and I shelved it. But I think it was kind of the genesis of the, the idea of Kiroskiro probably was embedded in then. So when I kind of put it in the shelf, got into animation, got dissatisfied with that, and came back to it, I'm like, this, you know, needs a lot of work. And I, I think I tried reworking it three or four times before I finally realized that, you know, that, that Eclectic Cafe idea is just not happening. I have no story for it. But I think just thinking about it a lot and starting to read a lot more, you know, these alternative comics and stuff, somewhere along the line, I just kind of had this, this spark moment where it kind of like, I have it. I know my story, and I know what I want to do, and so it all came together. I guess there was a lot of stuff working on my subconscious at the time, and it all came together in one moment. And I kind of knew the whole story right then and there, you know. And sans, you know, the the minor details and stuff, the big picture, like how it was going to go and end, and the main points all just kind of came at once. So now it's kind of a matter of making that happen. Ten years later, here I am with only one of the three books done. <laughs> Low process comics. So you only had... I was looking through um, the collected edition, and really you only published, self-published, like almost the first half, and then the rest had to be caught up, I guess. Yeah, I did seven issues in print, and then I just, like I said, I ran out of money, and we, we moved from Ottawa back to Prince Edward Island here, kind of reestablished ourselves back here when the animation industry in Ottawa went bust. And um, just kept drawing the comic with no real idea uh, if it would ever see any more issues in print. Um, and eventually I got a PEI Council of the Arts grant here to finish the book. So I finished the last issues 8, 9, and 10, as it were, which were never individually printed. And uh, put together uh, just a small print-on-demand, 100-copy versions of the, of the graphic novel, which I sent around. Um, so that was kind of like... You know, I, I was had in mind I, I wanted the first book to be about ten issues worth of material. So, uh, with the grant, I managed to do that, and I sent it out to you know pretty much everyone I could think of, be it you know publishers or people in the industry, anyone who just might mention it. <laughs> just got the resounding sound of silence beating in my ears, and um, oddly enough, the and interestingly enough, the, the one person who did kind of take notice of it and actually write a nice, kind review of it online was Dave Sim. Really? And Dave Sim is actually the reason I'm with IDW now by uh, twist of fate. I'd sent IDW a copy of the book, and uh, it got lost in the mail, I guess, I found out afterwards. Because um, after Dave had written his, his review on my book, which is, you know, as far as Dave goes, it was pretty flattering. Um, <laughs> in, a, in a very reserved sort of way, you know, of course. Uh, Hard to pull a quote out that you know <laughs> from from him, but anyway, um, the the publisher Ted Adams happens to be a big Cerebus fan, and uh, he contacted me after reading it, uh, the review, and asked for a copy. So that's when I found out that they hadn't gotten the one I sent them. So I sent them another one immediately, and in a few weeks we kind of worked out the deal, and that's how I came to be with IDW. Thank you, Dave Sim. <laughs> there we go. And uh, yeah, as anyone who who can. See the the artwork knows I'm heavily influenced in Kiroskiro by the the Sim Gerard mm -hmm. uh, school of, of <laughs> black and white cross hatching. It's well worn on your sleeve. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I make no bones about it. Uh, Cerebus was a huge, huge influence on me. Now, were you are you trying to maintain the same art style? Or it seems like you're kind of tightening it as you go along throughout the series. 
I think just the same way Dave always said about Cerebus is it's there's no way I'm going to draw issue one and it's going to look like issue 300. Yeah. I kind of just knew, having never really done a full comic before, or, you know, something that was going to be this big, you know, to sit down and try and spend all my time establishing what it's going to look like, I'd rather kind of get into it and just let it evolve on the page. So the interesting thing about that first book is there's a lot of evolution happening in a very short number of pages over you know, five or six years it took me to do that book. So the first few pages, you know, you compare that to the last few pages and it's night and day almost. Yeah. And to me it's just like, it's kind of interesting in one way to see that, that evolution, although, you know, there's that temptation to want to go back and, you know, quote-unquote, you know, fix Don't do <laughs> all it. stuff. But essentially just, you know, look at it, move on, and, and just keep the story going. It always bugs me when uh, folks do that. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it comes from an honest place. It's where I was at that time, and that's my, my skill level at that time. And then as I got better at handling the comic medium, you know, I think the both the visuals and the, the narrative flow and the artwork all improved, uh, you know, cohesively, I hope. So that's kind of the the natural progression. I mean, I have no idea. By, by the end of the third book, I'm not sure what it'll look like. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I mean, I think it's actually gotten into a comfortable groove towards the end of the last few books, or so. You know, how far are you into the second book? Not very. <laughs> I had a huge detour with this project called Ingor Napkin, which I'm sure we can get into. We but, will uh, be uh, after I play a certain song. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm coming around to, to book two finally after all these years. I am determined. I will finish the series, the, the story. So now, know, are you, being run over or something? Are you going to just do it as a book or do issues first? Uh, right to the book format. I think kind of the way. The industry's uh, gone. Yeah, it's the way it's kind of gone. So I think doing the issues, well, they never really did kind of pay off in one way. Um, and I think just there was so much time going on in between issues, and they kind yeah. of get filed away. You know, the same old, same old. So I'm thinking going straight to the book formats, the better better presentation for the for this particular story. All right. I think I'm going to play some Cub. Awesome. Um, which uh, keen listeners of CITR will know uh, from from years gone past. And uh, we'll be right back with Troy Little, CITR 101.9 FM.
CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Inkside Show. Uh, we're just about almost at 3 o'clock West Coast time, I should say. It's just two minutes to three. Um, just so you all know, uh, this will be the last week that I'm going to do in the hour and a half shows. I'm going to be honest, they've been uh, too much for me. I've got too much homework, too much other stuff. So next week I'll be back to the hour uh, slot. Um, but it's been a lot of fun being able to do longer interviews and have more people on the show. But uh, it's it's killing me. Killing me. Um, next week, my guests will be uh, Gene Yang and Derek Kirk Kim. And uh, we're going to talk about their new book from First Second, uh, The Eternal Smile, I think it is. I can't remember. I'm bad. Uh, they're both very, very nice men. And uh, I'm looking forward to having them both on. Uh, neither of them have been on yet. And I know both of them like the show. So it's about time. You know what I'm saying? And, um, yeah, after that, I don't know what I've got planned for the week after because it's uh, going to be San Diego and everyone and their dog will be down at San Diego Comic-Con. And I won't be because I don't have $2,000 to spare to spend on a hotel room and food and drinks and everything else that comes with going to San Diego and comics. Lots of comics. Um, at the end of the month, I'll be talking to uh, Dennis Kitchen about his uh, new book about Harvey Kurtzman. That is gorgeous. I think everyone's going to really like it. Um, everyone should look at the new book about Harvey Kurtzman from Abrams. And uh, yeah, we'll have some more code next month. Michael Cooperman. And the list goes on. Now I shall return to my guest right now, Troy Little. How you doing, Troy? Not too bad. Me and my dog are staying home, too. So There we go. We're, we're, we're the lone ones not going. <laughs> we're keeping it real up north. Yeah, yeah eh? Holding the fort. I'm going to go have some uh, some cod and uh, <laughs> just take it easy, eh? Let's do it. Yeah, I'm trying my best to sound like an East Coaster and uh, really doing a very I, good yeah. job. Yep. You don't sound like an East Coaster either. No, I don't. It's weird. I, I grew up here. I was born here, but uh, I somehow managed to avoid the, uh, the, the slang, I guess, or something. Yeah, you, Most I just... times, actually. My wife nails me every so often. It's like, you're starting to sound like a local. I guess I've been here for too long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the minute you come home with a big jar of pickled herring, you know there's a problem. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm even trying to like seafood. Oh, you don't? No, not really. I'm, you know, every so often I'll attack a lobster with, you know, some guidance by by one of the more educated of the, <laughs> of the bunch around here about how to crack and eat these Horrible crustaceans at the bottom of the sea. Those that have gone to lobstering school. Mm, yeah, and yeah, I think they were born with the just innate knowledge of how to eat and devour one of these things. But uh, not me. <laughs> uh, it takes a lot of crunching and cracking devices. It, it's really brutal. Uh, I remember being in a room full of people at a lobster fest down here, and it was just this many people like crunching into this weird-looking creature, this crustacean thing. This sea bug. It's kind of disturbing in a lot of ways. So it was the most brutal thing, just the way they like, here's how you rip its tail off and you snap its claws. <laughs> suck its stuff <laughs> out of its legs. And like, oh, my God. Such a, a brutal act, destroying and mangling these things in a crowd. <sighs> but so tasty. <laughs> <laughs> it is It is sweet, yeah. <laughs> Mighty delish. Um, yeah. Now, let tell me... Tell, tell, I guess, listeners, why the choice in the Cub song? Uh, Cub, the Cub Connection. Um, well, this is a little bit almost almost predates Kiroskiro in a lot of ways. Um, when I first started in animation, um, I thought, oh, okay, this is great. This is my dream job, doing animation, before you know, I became the bitter, jaded old man I am now. Um, and, uh, you know, happily working along, drawing, you know, kids' shows for Nelvana and backgrounds for Franklin, Trees and Rocks, and all that good stuff. Um, then I got laid off, which was kind of a surprise to me. I thought, you get a job and you, you know, have a job. But uh, <laughs> I didn't realize that this thing only worked on contracts, and in between the contracts there could be dead periods of time, you know, lasting for months. <laughs> and so I found myself in, in one of those down periods the first time, and not knowing when I was going to go back to work. Me and uh, my friend Nick Cross, who, who came up with Ingor Napkin with me back in, like, 97, we were both scratching our heads thinking, well, you know, maybe what we should do would be, like, make our own cartoon. Uh, that's a good idea. Um, you know, pretty naive of us to do that, having actually had no animation training at the time. We both went to uh, to Sheridan for illustration. 
so uh, animation was became a self-taught thing at that point. And uh, we just thought, well, that's what we'll do. So we came up with this idea for uh, an all-girl band insanity cartoon called Angora Napkin, which was loosely based on Cub. Cub and Shonen Knife and that kind of cuddlecore girl punk pop movement that was happening in the mid-90s. Um, so we just really, really liked Cub, and they kind of just really inspired the idea for this trio of girls and kind of just the idea of uh, making the kind of cartoon that we thought wasn't on TV anymore, the Looney Tunes kind of over-the-top cartoony cartoon. The good so stuff. So all the stuff we felt stifled with during the day, working on Franklin or Rupert or something, you know, we could go and take out our frustrations on, you know, this wacky trio of girls and make a funny cartoon for a change. You know what? I'm going to really quickly play the theme song. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Here we go. We're back. That's a familiar voice, eh? <laughs> <laughs> we just heard that. Just heard her. Yeah, that was uh, one of the cool things that kind of kind of happened out of the whole idea of making a cartoon. Is uh, years and years later, we have to actually make a cartoon, and um, that means we need music. So uh, I tracked down Lisa Marr in California and Mint Records in Vancouver, and we got the rights to do some cub music, and she wrote a brand new theme song for us. Awesome. How that kind of came about, it was neat that the inspiration for the show became the music for the show. <laughs> <laughs> so how much stuff do you have animated? for? Uh, we've got a pilot episode done right now. Um, Teletune actually did a, uh, because I'm getting ahead of myself chronologically. But yeah, sure we, can, we can jump back. We can jump back, yeah. It's radio, we can edit. <laughs> we're, we're not live, right? <laughs> um, we're live. So, <laughs> um, yeah, the, a few what was it, a year or so ago now? It must have been a year and a half or something. Teletune had a uh, pilot project that went out across Canada. It was just an open call looking for late-night cartoon content. Uh, and they were going to pick ten shows to develop into pilots, and Angora Napkin was one of the ten that they chose. So over the winter last year and into the early this year, we made the pilot episode of Angora Napkin. It's all done now, and we're just waiting for Teletune to put it on... Teletoons <laughs> broadcast it. Show we don't actually it. have an air date yet. Oh, one day. Yeah, but you can go online and YouTube and go napkin, and you can actually see the the trailer, which is the uh, Lisa Mara music with uh, some clips, anyways, from the show. So it's as close as we can get to showing anything yet, really. So I guess uh, where were we as far as talking about the chronology? So you were working. You were. Out Back in '97, I guess when we came up with the idea, nine um, seven, and uh, did a whole lot of work on the project. Like we were really gung ho for it. And this is, you know, a little bit of the uh, before the days that Flash was really taken off as, as the animation mode of choice, uh, such as it is. <laughs> and um, but, anyways, nonetheless, we were thinking of doing like a limited animation type of cartoon. It's a little bit anime inspired, a little bit Hanna Barbera inspired, you know, and a little bit of Looney Tunes in there as well. Um, we did storyboards, wrote scripts, all kinds of stuff, and and we had someone come along there after we pitched to the, to the studio we were working at. They said, "We love it. We love the idea." Um, and then, but they came up to us one day and they said, "You know, um, we want you to change the name because we find one one person anyway in particular found the name Angora Napkin to be offensive, and we said, it's offensive. It's." Or a napkin. It doesn't mean anything. Um, but she said, yeah, it kind of makes me think of, of a feminine hygiene product gone wrong. And I thought about that for a minute. And I'm like, really? Yeah? Cool. I like it even better now. <laughs> you know, the whole show is kind of meant to be like you take it on two levels in many ways, you know? So the idea that you can interpret that out of it is just kind of perfect. Um, but they wanted us to change the name to like Bubblegum Pop or Rock Candy. And we said, no, we're not going to do that. And so we kind of just shelved the whole project. 
And uh, that's kind of where it stayed. I went in, got into comics, made Kiroskuro, started getting into doing that. And then uh, I think it was 2003, we were moving back home to PEI here, and uh, I'd sat down and talked with Nick, who was a co-creator of the show with me, and said, you know, one of these days I'm going to want to do something with Ingor and Napkin, because they're just too fun to just not, just to abandon, you know, in a, in a binder somewhere. So I said, I'm going to make a comic out of them someday. And after I'd finished uh, drawing the first volume of Kiroskuro, I thought, you know, I could really use a break from cross-hatching and do something maybe <laughs> just a little stupid instead of this really heavy David Lynch-esque drama that I'm doing. Um, and I thought, in Gornapkin, this is a good time to do it. You know, I can probably do this in a year um, and then get back to Kiroskuro. So that was the idea. And uh, the year turned into about three years and then some. But in, in the intern, I got married. I had twin daughters and moved back to PEI, and we got a cartoon pilot made, so it kind of dragged out a lot longer than I expected before I could get back to Kiroskuro. But nonetheless, the book uh, the book got finished and came out earlier this year, so it's kind of neat to have them um, almost coming out in tandem, the book coming out, and then later this year, the cartoon coming out, so one day, kind of cool. It came full circle that way. Now, it doesn't, the, the book isn't exactly for kids. no. Nothing I do is really for kids. <laughs> it's got that kind of illusion of being cartoony and for kids, but it's it's full of innuendo and pseudo-sexual moments and such that kind of put it into the heavy PG area. <laughs> the heavy PG it's not, area. It's nothing gratuitous. And in fact, if you watch old Looney Tunes, you know, it's, it's actually pretty tame compared to a lot of old cartoons from the 30s and 40s. Oh, let me tell you. So, you know, we were doing late-night cartoons, and it's actually tamer than watching Bugs Bunny reruns with my kids, so... <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's not for kids, but, you know, maybe maybe it would be for kids if it was the 1940s. Kids these days, they need to lighten up. Yeah, that's just it, you know. They need a, <laughs> need a little TNA with their, <laughs> their uh, violence, so... There we go. I mean, yeah, so it's okay for them to... Yeah, I'm not going to get into the violence. Yeah, it, yeah. They're just so fun to do. They're just... Yeah, I love Angora Napkin. They're too much fun to draw. Tell me about the young ladies in Angora Napkin. What's that, sir? T- tell me about the uh, the band members. Oh, yeah, okay. So we got three three girls. We got Beatrice, who's the lead singer, and she's just kind of the ultimate airhead lead singer, ditzy girl. Um, and I don't know how she became the leader of the band, but she's just kind of, I guess, the one who dives headfirst in any situation. And then the bass player would be Molly, who's a little bit more analytical, but kind of just as dumb. And then there's the drummer, Mallory, who's my silent bob of the group. She's a goth-type, scrawny, emaciated heroin addict by the looks of her, who's just kind of there. <laughs> and she's never really explained why she's with these other two playing pop music. <laughs> she's, you know, she's just there. Why is she there? She's, a, she's the enigma of the group. And usually the foil to whatever kind of mischief they get into. She's the one who usually gets as it befall upon her. So. Yeah. The other two take everything in stride. So the, the idea behind Angor Napkin is essentially this uber-happy pop group who can't see the dark side of any situation, and they kind of always find themselves in horrible situations. Kind of like, uh, you know, Hello Kitty meets Friday the 13th, or, you know, Cub thrown into Franz Kafka's The Trial or something. You know? It's <laughs> kind of that mentality of contrast. So. Um the drummer being the only one who's actually aware that, you know, they're either in dire <laughs> straits or they're going to be killed or something while the other two just kind of bubble along. So it's just, they're fun. They just want to have fun. Yep, yeah, it's just, yeah. It named fun with a little TNA and violence, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, the intro to the book, John K. Yep. Um, tell me about your time working for John, uh, doing yeah, animation. He, he was a... Uh, Real, real eye-opener working for him. It was kind of the first time I worked in animation. I actually enjoyed what I did. Um, I spent most of my time, and so far anyways, doing a lot of backgrounds for kids' shows. And then John Kay came to town uh, into Ottawa to do the Ripping Friends, and I was working at a studio at one point doing ink and paint for the Ripping Friends early on. And I thought, there's no way I want to be sitting around here doing the graveyard shift, coloring the characters. I want to be out there drawing them, and he's in town. Yeah, I'm gonna have to call him up. <laughs> so I did that, and uh, just kind of bit the bullet. Decided I was gonna call him, and 
he, uh, he's like, well, you, can you draw funny? Bring in a portfolio tomorrow. And, you know, my portfolio consisted of trees and rocks from Franklin with turtles and five seasons worth. So I'm, <laughs> I, I know what he likes, and I know everything I draw he's going to hate. And <laughs> nonetheless, I kind of thought, well, I asked for it. So I went in with a portfolio, and uh, he flipped through it, and I pretty much thought I was, you know, ready to head back out the door, go home, and <laughs> back to ink and paint. But uh, he gave me some work, and he gave me more work than I expected. And we kind of got on pretty good. I guess I did fairly well for him, and he seemed to like what I do. And when uh, the Ren and Stimpy art, uh, adult cartoon party for Spike TV came about, I was started working with him there as well. So we had a, kind of a good working relationship. He's a, he's a tough master, but uh, you learn something if you've you got your ears open and you're willing to kind of put in the hours. Well, I would tell anyone who asks me, you know, to check out his blog because it's, it's the best animation school on the net for free, you know. Like, he knows his stuff, whether or not you, uh, you can agree with a lot of his methods and stuff. He, he knows what he's talking about. And he's, uh, he makes you work. He, he calls you on every dumb mistake you make. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of those things that you learned working um, from? Well, there was a lot of things about construction and, and just basic design and flow and... A lot of stuff I probably would have learned if maybe I went to animation school or something, but would never probably put into practice knowing the, the industry around here. Um, so it was kind of an odd thing to actually have that old school Looney Tunes kind of termite terrace world of an actual studio where somebody's sitting down and making you watch a bunch of cartoons and then making you work and draw and draw it again if you draw it wrong and understand how muscles connect and all these things. You really think about what you're doing. You wouldn't kind of accept anything less than the best you could pull out of you. So it was hard to work for, but it was, you sure learned a lot, you know, it was boot camp. Animation boot camp. Yep, it was worth it. <laughs> so uh, I figured whenever I'd done the, uh, the Angora Napkin book, I don't think he was keen at all on Kiaroscuro, if he even seen much of it. Um, when I did Angora Napkin, I thought, you know, this, you might actually like this because it's a little bit more of that kind of flesher animation and kind of, um, really fleshy and cartoony and stuff. He might actually like this, so I'm going to send him a copy and see what he thinks, you know. And I managed to strangle a forward out of him. So. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, he introduces my book, and he's very kind. So that's that's pretty good, I guess. Do you still do much animation, PEI? Is there an animation industry there? Yep, that's still my day job. I'm still doing backgrounds, <laughs> except I guess uh, one thing that changed when I moved back here is the industry pretty much switched over by and large to uh to flash or toon boom so i work in flash animation now that's uh pretty much what everyone yep. does i think yeah pretty much i think i know one person that still uh does some does backgrounds on pen and paper oh yeah yeah that's, that's uh, old school we yeah. did the angora napkin cartoon we did it in flash but we uh we didn't want to make it look like flash because we hate that um that you know really just symbol animation tweening and Stuff. So we did, me and Nick kind of did half and half the show each, and he uh, he kind of took his half and did it his own style, and I did my half and my own style, kind of the, that idea that, you know, Chuck Jones and Bob Clampett aren't going to draw Bugs Bunny the same way. Yeah, Most people aren't going to pick up on it, but you know, we had our own take on it, and we kind of just ran with that. So he would direct his half, I directed my half, and one thing we did instead of making like stock characters and stock symbols and stuff, we did a whole lot of original drawings. So everything was, was original drawing from scene to scene. We figure if it's going to be limited, it's at least going to look good, hopefully. So uh, that was a lot of work, but I uh, got one of those nice Cintiq tablets to work on, and that helped out an awful lot. Those things are fancy. They're pretty sweet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically, just so people know, it's basically like you're drawing on a monitor. Yeah. You you look exactly what you're drawing on. You can get very specific with the details. and It's the closest thing probably that you can get to traditional animation on paper. Instead of flipping paper, you can actually just click back and forth on the keyboard and, and draw on the screen like you would flip paper and draw on paper. So it's pretty quick to work <laughs> on like that, and really you can make a lot of mistakes and fix them real easy and check your stuff immediately. So it does it, help a lot. It's pretty darn nice. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. The only sad part is a lot of uh, comic artists are now using those kind of things, and 
we'll see less original art. Yeah, well, I think, and I say this now, of course, but, you know, I I think I'm going to keep my comic work personally in on pen and paper. Yeah. I'm just a purist with my comics, I think. That's good. I don't think there's any way I could crosshatch, like, Kiyoskiro stuff on, on a Wacom tablet. <laughs> so I just don't think that would work. And I think in Gordon Atkin, just there's something about using a brush. It's a little bit more rough line or an intuitive line. You can just kind of feel it out differently. And, and you use different tools for the different projects, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm with, a, like, a crow quill pen and just dipping the ink and stuff for Kiyoskiro. So you get those really, really fine hatching lines. And I tend to use a brush pen, like Pentel brush pen for Angora napkin, just because i got to draw on the fly whenever I get a moment to grab. That's the, the fun of having two kids. <laughs> I don't get a whole lot of time, so I need to draw when I can, and I can't be chained to my desk if I'm out for coffee or having lunch. I can draw it while I'm waiting for food. There we go, just a little panel here and a little panel there. Pretty much, and, and just chip away at it. Yep, that's why it's so damn slow. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> get new books out. Well, I'm sure right now folks want to check out your work. I mean, you've got the two books from IDW. Yeah, well, I think, uh, and Curious Kuro took so long to do the first time around. I think um, instead of just falling off the, the face of the earth for the next few years while I work on that, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to keep the Ingor Napkin rolling. I'm going to make an Ingor Napkin webcomic. So that's that's working in tandem with... Uh, with the Kiyoskiro books. I figure I'll serialize my next Gorn Apkin graphic novel online and, and do it in full color this time instead of just the two-tone that I did for the, the first book. Nice. So I like that'll the be coming up sometime soon. Cool. Well, uh, people can check out your work, I guess, at angoranapkin.com and... Meanwhilestudios.com. There we go. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Troy. No problem, Rob. Happy to be on. Yeah, and uh, enjoy uh, the lovely uh, PI weather. Uh, well, today, well, we have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm For not sure about minutes. tomorrow. <laughs> well, I'm going to go out in the sun now, so ha. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Troy. No problem, Rob. Thanks. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. And so just so people know, Kiyoskuro and uh, Gordon Napkin from IDW are his books. Check them out. I'm going to finish off with uh, Little Nine Inch Nails off of uh, the Further Down the Spiral album as per uh, Troy's request. And up next after that will be the uh, French Connection.